welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Chris Gunes, founder of the Myanmar Accountability Project. In 1988, Chris covered the democracy uprising in Myanmar for the BBC. He has remained an outspoken and passionate advocate for human rights and the rule of law ever since. After a 23-year career in the BBC, he joined the United Nations as Director of Strategic Communications and Advocacy in the Middle East. In 2019, he left the UN and returned to London. He founded the Myanmar Accountability Project in response to the military coup in 2021. The Myanmar Accountability Project works discreetly with civil society within Myanmar to build criminal cases against individual members of the Myanmar security forces. Here he discusses their work and the current international legal cases they have pending against the junta. Let's start the conversation. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. Um, we're, we've been wanting to talk to you for quite a while. We have been following your Myanmar Accountability Project with, with great interest. And oh, you are someone, you. yeah, you are someone who's been involved in Myanmar all the way back to '88. So we can imagine this is almost like déjà vu for you in many ways. Um, but if you would introduce yourself, maybe for our listeners, and, and tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your connection to Myanmar. My name is Chris Gunnis, and I was sent as a cub reporter in 1988 by what was then the BBC World Service, what still is, I guess, uh, to Myanmar. Actually, it was called Burma then, Myanmar now. And I found myself getting caught up in the revolution. So shortly after I arrived in what was then Rangoon, Ney Win, who was the then dictator in charge, uh, announced that after 26 years of single party rule by his completely nutty Burma Socialist Programme Party, there would be a pluralist economy, there'd be multi-party democracy, and that the whole system was about to change. And many people were sceptical, quite rightly, because, of course, as we know, nothing did change. The army in Myanmar did not get back into its barracks, and that remains the question for the country today, incidentally. But the revolution broke out around me. I became involved with the revolution. Some students left a mysterious note under my pillow in the hotel saying, come, we want to meet you tomorrow, be outside the Sule Pagoda at nine o'clock. And I was, and I was bundled into a car, taken off to the underground, as it were, in the university in northern Rangoon. And the students in an interview in Burmese, which to this day is a language I don't really speak, said to me, our revolution is going to start at eight minutes past eight on the 8th of the 8th of 1988. The tapes were then smuggled out in diplomatic bags back to Bush House, home of the World Service. And on the 6th of August, they were broadcast back into Burma. So suddenly the whole of the country knew not just the hour, but the exact minute, um, the 8th of the 8th, eight minutes past eight, 1988, of when the revolution would start. And indeed, at eight minutes past eight, the dock workers in Rangoon Port put down um, and came out on strike and the rest of the country followed them out. And within hours, really, there were millions of people on the streets of Rangoon and Mandalay and major cities around the country. So I got really very involved in the whole revolution. Eventually, I was kicked out of the country, but I carried on reporting and my Reports were in those days, the BBC Burmese service had two broadcasts, an evening broadcast and a morning broadcast. And my reports went to those they were listened to by, at that stage, some 44 million people in the country, 40 million or so. So, yeah, I became very much involved. Suddenly, the people of 
Burma could hear, you know, in the north what was going on in the south and the east what was going on in the west. So suddenly for the first time in a sense in the country's history, as the revolution raged, people across the country knew what was happening. And that was a huge boost to the revolution. People suddenly realized it wasn't just them in their little village. It was a nationwide uprising. And the BBC, in a way, became the lifeblood of the revolution. Um, but sadly, in September of that year, there were some massacres. The army said there was a coup. In reality, nothing really changed. The army carried on being in charge. And thousands of people, we'll never know how many exactly, were, were butchered, were gunned down in the streets as the army opened fire on unarmed demonstrators. And then Burma was chucked in the deep freeze. And, you know, we can talk more about what happened. But that's the story of my involvement with Myanmar. And it's a country which I love, and it remains to this day something that's very close to my heart. Yeah, we're always saying that it is a place that kind of stays with you. So I'm not surprised that it stayed with you uh, all this time. You're just reminding me there that by September, you know, they had crushed the movement very quickly back then. That hasn't happened this time around. What are you seeing that's different this time from, from 88? Well, that's a really interesting question, Suzanne, because there are some crucial differences, which I think could, and I stress the word could, determine the outcome of this particular national struggle. One of the biggest differences is the internet. Generation Z is wired, it's online, so a massacre in Yangon or Mandalay is virtually live streamed, pictures are taken, and immediately they go across the country. So there is a sense of connectedness in Myanmar as there never has been, and that's thanks to the courage, the bravery, the ingenuity, and the sheer brilliance of Generation Z. They are outsmarting the dinosaurs who are in the military, who don't understand the internet and social media platforms as well as these kids do, and plaudits and congratulations to them. But the other thing that this is doing is providing information and evidence for international accountability mechanisms. And this is, I think, the other crucial difference between 1988 and now, that what you have is a much more highly developed international accountability, international justice mechanism. So all of the information that's being gathered is actually being, or I say all, a huge amount of it is being collated, it's being stored, it's being analysed, it's being cross-referenced, it's being cross-checked. So suddenly, the instruments of international justice have material which they can use come the day that there are criminal prosecutions. Now, of course, that's a very big question. When will that day dawn? I'm old enough to have worked. I worked for the United Nations in the Balkans. And I remember that when these terrible massacres and atrocities like the Srebrenica massacre, which took place in 1995, we all in the UN just looked at each other and said, what on earth? You know, when will there ever be justice for the poor, the families of those who were massacred in Srebrenica? But, you know, cut to 10, 15 years later, Milosevic, Karadzic, Mladic, the main protagonists of those atrocities ended up in The Hague. They were tried. There was justice. Um, the people of Srebrenica did, not those who were massacred, sadly, but those who survived, their families and loved ones, did have their day in court. So the wheels of international justice do turn very slowly, but they are turning. And as I say, that, along with the internet, is one of, I think, the two crucial differences between what was happening in Myanmar in 1988 and what's happening now. 
Would you have believed in 88 that you would be back here now, like that Myanmar would be right back in the same situation? Like if someone said that to you 10 years ago, do you think this would be the way it was going? Did you believe in the democracy or the Aung San Suu Kyi government? Or had you seen the signs that that really wasn't what people thought it was going to be? I have never trusted the Myanmar military, the Tatmadaw. They are cruel people. They are run by cruel people. They are prepared to stop at nothing in their bloodthirstiness, and they will cling to power against all odds. And I have long believed that the only way for the army to get back into its barracks, if it ever gets back into its barracks, and even if it does, will it stay there um, for any you know, significant amount of time? I have long believed that the only way for the current military regime to be ousted is for the army to be split, for the army to divide. And I think there's very little chance at the moment of that happening, though we are seeing increasing defections. And I think as never before, the opposition under the National Unity Government, which is functioning as a government, is putting military, political, diplomatic, all sorts of pressures on the Tatmadaw that I think are unprecedented. We've simply never seen this level of organisation. There's further to go, obviously. But I think that the Myanmar opposition groups, diplomatically, politically and militarily, have never quite exerted as much pressure on the Burmese army as they are now. So I think, you know, now is the best time in the contemporary history of Myanmar for us to see the military splitting. But to answer your question, though I didn't trust the Myanmar military, and I think that the irony is they are seen, at least they project this image of being the institution in the country that can hold the union together and must be trusted. They are, of course, the opposite. They are the institution which is most threatening the union. It's most threatening the lives, the prosperity, the human rights, the dignity, the democracy of everyone in Myanmar. So in a way, it surprises me that Burma has become such a case in terms of, you know, 14 million people in urgent need of humanitarian assistance, over a million, 1.2 million people displaced by crisis, by conflict, by the war, the civil wars that are going on, by the human rights abuses, by the humanitarian catastrophe, by the economic contagion that's confronting the country. So that does surprise me. I had thought in this brief period of liberalisation between sort of 2012 till the 2015 election, there might be a window of opportunity in which responsible politicians like Aung San Suu Kyi would come to some kind of lasting accommodation with the generals. But in the end, she miscalculated. She pushed them too far. And Burma has paid an enormous price for her miscalculation. That said, she remains pretty much the most popular politician in the country. So whatever outsiders like myself say about the miscalculations she made in the events that led up to the coup, and in spite of what outsiders like myself say about her disgraceful lack of values in going to The Hague and defending the generals in their genocidal slaughter of so many Rohingyas, in spite of all of that, she does remain the most popular politician in Myanmar today. So tell us about the Myanmar Accountability Project, which you founded. Uh, what is its aims? Uh, what are you trying to do? Um, what are you hoping to do through this project? Well, the Myanmar Accountability Project was set up in response, if you like, to the coup 
in February 2021 when a group of us got together, totally shell-shocked the day it all happened, though it actually was quite predictable, and did a mapping exercise and said, what isn't being done? Everyone was doing everything. Everyone was, you know, development and human rights and humanitarian work and political and strategic and all sorts of things were going on. So we sat down and looked at what wasn't being done. And what wasn't being done is that there wasn't an organisation exclusively dedicated to bringing criminal prosecutions against perpetrators of atrocity crimes in Myanmar, specifically the junta. Nobody was looking at these terrible crimes that were being committed and saying, what can we do about them? So I got together with a group of very smart lawyers, some of them in London, um, a wonderful protection officer called Damien Lilly, who I'd worked with in Palestine. Protection is basically human rights protection. And Damien is frankly one of the best in the business, one of the most well-regarded in the UN system. And I should also pay tribute to Emmy Schleich, who is our amazing administrator and webmaster. But anyway, a group of us got together and looked at what wasn't being done. I then, once we identified criminal accountability as something that was urgently needed, we then asked the question, well, how do you do it? Because criminal accountability is clearly not possible in the Myanmar court system, where the court system has become a punitive political weapon in the hands of a very vindictive junta, as we've seen recently with the execution of Ko Jimmy and the Yangon Four, but also the way that the courts are being used against the National League for Democracy and others. So the question then is, you can't get justice inside Myanmar. How do you go about getting justice outside? And here we centred on this thing called universal jurisdiction, which is the idea that some crimes are so heinous and so serious, they have to be tried somewhere on the planet. And we then set about looking for jurisdictions in which we could say to people, well, although the victim is not from your country, and although the perpetrator is not from your country, this crime is so serious and what's being done is so serious, you have an obligation. And we started to look at what could trigger that obligation. And one of the things is the fact that countries have signed international treaties outlawing certain kinds of behaviour. For example, the United Nations Convention Against Torture, so-called UNCAT. So many member states of the UN have signed this thing, and that makes an obligation, a universal obligation on them to prevent torture happening anywhere on the planet by anyone against anyone. It doesn't matter if they're Irish or Swedish or, you know, where they come from. If that country has signed UNCAT, arguably they have an obligation to make sure that it's implemented. So we went to all sorts of different places, talking to Crown Prosecution Services, talking to lawyers, talking to politicians about whether a case would be possible. And of course, just to stress that as well as the law being correct, you obviously have to find a legal system in which bringing a case is permissible against foreign nationals, where the victims themselves are foreign nationals. You have to make sure that the politics are right, that you know ultimately in many of these jurisdictions, the attorney general or a politician of a certain stripe has to sign off on the case moving forward. So as well as making sure that the law is right, we had to make sure that the political environment around that case was going to be right. Cut to today, and for reasons I can't explain, but we have cases in Turkey. Many people think that's odd because Turkey has a reputation for torturing Kurds and denying the Armenian genocide. Nonetheless, we have brought a case in Istanbul. We have brought a case at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. We have a case in London where we have prevented the junta getting its hands on the ambassadorial residence, which they're desperately trying to do. 
We are hoping to launch a case in Paris, a money laundering case against Total, trying to establish the legal precedent that if you do business with the junta, you are complicit in their crimes. And we want that to be an important, we see that as an important legal precedent, because if oil companies do pull out, what we don't want is other oil companies moving in and filling the vacuum that they have left behind. So in establishing the precedent that you're complicit in the war crimes of an illegal junta if you work with them, we hope that we'll be able to cut against that trend that we're seeing. And we are supporting a case in Jakarta where we hope that the Constitutional Court will allow an extraterritorial case, a case to be heard at the Human Rights Court in Jakarta against the Myanmar junta. And we're working with various human rights organizations on the ground to put together a criminal file because we hope that we will be able to persuade the Indonesian Constitutional Court that they have an obligation to allow a case. And that would be groundbreaking because that would be a case in ASEAN. And of course, it's in ASEAN that the dial really needs to move. The UN Security Council and others are always saying, well, we have to take our lead from the regional organization. And of course, ASEAN has been woefully inactive and inadequate on Myanmar. They've got this five-point consensus, which Min Aung Hlaing, senior general, is saying that until the violence stops, he won't engage with it. So it's quite clear that the five-point plan of ASEAN is being used as a pretext by the Burmese, the illegal failed Burmese junta, to try to prolong their grip on power. So, yes, we hope that a case in one of the more progressive ASEAN countries, Indonesia, will begin to move the dial. So, you know, that's where those are the cases the map have. We have other cases up our sleeve, and as well as doing criminal cases, we do a lot of advocacy. So we have a, a we're holding a webinar on Myanmar at the ICC, trying to get the International Criminal Court to engage with the National Unity Government. And we also have an advocacy project in New York where we're trying to make sure that the National Unity Government Ambassador, Ucho Motun, is credentialed at the UN again this year. The decision will come between September and December in New York. And we're hoping again that Jomo Tun will be given credentials and will continue to represent the people of Myanmar at the UN General Assembly in New York. Wow, that is a lot that you guys are doing. <laughs> like, that is a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm just even thinking where to start in terms of unpacking that. But I, I know we spoke with Roger Pollock when we spoke uh, about the Nowhere is Safe report that Yale Shell Centre had done with Fortify Rights. And he talked a lot about the legal side of things. And Ruth was wondering, who, who can take these people to these courts? And, and you guys have shown that, you know, it can be done. Is the goal that if they are convicted, that they, they cannot leave their country, like that they could be, you know, arrested and brought to another country to be tried for their crimes? So is that the... I guess the outcome you'll be hoping for in terms of these military officials that, that you are trying to take a case against? The outcome that we're hoping for is justice for the victims, that they have their day in court and that the perpetrators of the crimes against them are held accountable. Now, there are many different ways to skin a cat. So it really depends on how this is done. In Turkey, for example, we hope that when we move to an actual trial, because Interpol has got tentacles all around the world, and I don't want to get into the details of that for obvious tactical reasons, that when the time comes for the 23 people we've named in our criminal file in Istanbul to be held to account, 
Interpol red notices, as they're called, will be established. And when any of those perpetrators scan their barometric passport going through an airport where Interpol has operations, the red alarm will be triggered and that person will be apprehended and taken to the place where the trial is going to be happening. So that's one option. The other option, as happened in the case of Yugoslavia, is that the perpetrators were simply handed over, that the politics of the former Yugoslavia became such that if they wanted to join the European Union, if they wanted the country to develop in certain ways, they had no choice but to hand these people over. So the answer to your question is yes, that is certainly one of the possibilities that the perpetrators are apprehended and put on trial in the way that, you know, police apprehend perpetrators in any country. They hunt them down, they get them and they take them to court and they try them. And if they're found guilty, they're imprisoned. And that is certainly the ambition for these cases that we have in various parts of the world. Just when you're saying about justice for the victims, I guess even just an acknowledgement in the highest courts of any country that you have been wronged. In absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's an incredibly important thing that the psychological aspects of justice are not spoken about very much. But I have seen a client, particularly that we work with, go from being a very badly damaged victim of torture to being a survivor of torture to being someone who is an advocate, not just for their own self and their own case, but for other victims of torture. And that is a hugely curative and empowering journey for a human being to go on. So acknowledgement, having their day in court, being able to tell their stories, just acknowledging and the world saying, we know you've suffered and that you have been through these things is hugely important. And just when you're mentioning that, that UN seat, because at the moment it is it is vacant. I mean, John Moton is there. Uh, he hasn't lost it, but he also is unable to do anything. He cannot make statements, can he, for Myanmar? Yes. I mean, that's a very interesting question. What the Credentials Committee, which decides upon these matters at the UN General Assembly, determined last mm-hmm. year was to defer its decision on credentialing but leave the incumbent in his seat. And the incumbent was Jomo Tun. And you're right, there was an agreement, an arrangement that he, for the first part of the General Assembly, the so-called high-level debate, that he wouldn't speak. And that was an agreement drawn up between the nine members of the Credentials Committee. So although you're right, he was not allowed to speak for the first part of the General Assembly session, he was then allowed to take part um, more widely in the discussions of the General Assembly. And he's actually, he's contributed debates, he's deposited documents with the Secretary General, and he has functioned as the ambassador. And actually, the NUG Foreign Ministry has come out very strongly and very openly and said he is our ambassador. So we have a situation today where the NUG ambassador represents Myanmar at the UN General Assembly and can contribute quite fully to the meetings of the General Assembly. And we hope that that is a decision which will be replicated this year when they meet. But of course, there's much politics around that. The Russians and the Chinese are permanent members, without a veto, incidentally, of the Credentials Committee. And it's far from clear how that debate in the Credentials Committee will go. 
the Myanmar Accountability Project and others have we've actually produced an advocacy, a briefing paper, which lays out all the arguments. And there are very strong arguments for why the NUG should represent Myanmar at the UN. We actually did a legal opinion about this. And what we have found is that since what we did is we went back to the beginning of the UN and said where there are credentials challenges, where you have two administrations attempting to represent a state at the UN, which classically happens either after a disputed election or a military coup. In the case of Myanmar, it's both of those things. How has the Credentials Committee made a determination about which of these administrations to accept and to give credentials to? And what we've found is that since the early 90s, since the end of the Cold War, essentially, effective control of a country is much less of a determination. And in any case, the junta is not in effective control of Myanmar. But the two determinants which are increasingly predominant are, one, democratic credentials. So where an administration can demonstrate that it has these democratic credentials, the UN General Assembly is more likely to recognise it. And of course, the National Unity Government is made up of people who won overwhelmingly, you know, over 85% of the vote in the elections in November 2020. So, you know, on the democratic credentials box, tick to the NUG, they, you know, they beat the junta hands down. And the other determinant is respect for human rights. And you know, report after report by the UN rapporteur Tom Andrews and his amazing team, but others have, you know, proved beyond all reasonable doubt that on the question of human rights, the NUG's record far outstrips that of the junta. So, you know, on those three things, on human rights and democracy, the NUG beats the junta hands down. And on the question of effective control, even though it matters far less these days, even on that, the National Unity Government, given its alliances with various ethnic nationalities groups, it also beats the junta very much on the question of effective control. I mean, one of the other things that you mentioned as well is the military attaché in London. And we also have like Jaws Ormin. He was locked out of the embassy there. And that situation, it, it seems like we never really got a full story of what's going no. on. <laughs> You're quite right. You're quite right, Suzanne. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so, he's so, not a popular person, which is why maybe people haven't been elevating that as much. Um, yes, I mean, people certainly haven't flocked to his cause as they have to Jomotun in New York. That's certainly the case. And that's because he's very open. I mean, he will tell you himself that he has a military background. He was a military bureaucrat. And there are many people in the community in London who don't trust him. And he, as it happens, when we started the Myanmar Accountability Project, we had a group of lawyers working for us in London, specifically an amazing legal practice called Peters and Peters, one of the UK's, perhaps the world's leading criminal. Um, they, they, they do the most amazing criminal prosecutions. And Joshua Min went to them. And it so happened that these are the lawyers that I was working with to start MAP with. And so he just became de facto one of our early cases. And to be clear, he, whatever you think of the man, has prevented the Myanmar junta getting its hands on Myanmar House, which is the 40 million pound ambassadorial residence in the leafy suburb of Hampstead in North London. Now, at a time when the battle is on for diplomatic recognition, if the junta were to get its hands on Myanmar House, that would be a huge diplomatic prize. 
So it is very important that they don't. And Joshua Min, in spite of the fact that the junta has sent agents to intimidate him, and you know, this is a country where we had the Novichok crisis, where Putin sent agents to poison his enemies in Britain. So let's not underplay the bravery of Joshua Min. This is a, a junta which, by the way, um, attempted to murder Jomo Tun in New York. And that case was picked up by the NYPD. So, you know, let's be clear, this is a, a, not just a murderous junta in terms of the people within Myanmar, where it's put to death thousands of people. This is a junta that is prepared to commit murder against its enemies abroad. So what Matt did is Peters and Peters wrote to the junta in the embassy, um, the stolen embassy in London, and said in the UK, if you want to evict somebody from a house, you have to go in, under English law to a county court, obtain an eviction notice, go to the police and say, there's a trespasser in my house, will you please evict him? And the police will then go in and evict those trespassers or that person. And we said to the junta, if you are going to try this, you will lose. You will not be able to persuade a county court that you have the right to an eviction notice. We pointed out to them that under the British, the English property register, Myanmar House belongs to the Union of Myanmar. We pointed out to them that they do not represent the Union of Myanmar. They came to power in an unconstitutional, illegal, now failed coup, and that that coup and the junta has been condemned by the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and all of our major allies. And it is quite beyond the possibility that a county court will allow you to evict this man. And in other words, what we've done is we've turned effectively a diplomatic dispute around the Vienna Diplomatic Convention into a property dispute. And so far, we have won the battle, if not the war. Joshua Min remains in the house. He's holding on to it for the people of Myanmar. I hope that one day the National Duty Government will appoint an ambassador to London. That ambassador will move into Myanmar House and that Myanmar House will start functioning as an embassy, as a representative office of 55 million people in Myanmar, that they will hold National Day celebrations, they'll hold Burmese cultural events, they'll hold annual human rights lectures, they'll do all the things which diplomats do in foreign embassies. That would certainly be the ambition for Myanmar House. And at that stage, they could invite members of the diplomatic service, they could invite British politicians, they could invite cultural figures, they could invite anybody they liked, and they could get on with having a functioning embassy in London, because that's what the people of Myanmar want from their embassies, what they want from their representative offices all around the world. And that is a possibility. And it's lying there for the NUG to accept if they wish to. One of the things I wanted to ask you, because I do know you have a background from working with the UN, and we've mm. seen the special envoy has made a trip just this week, is probably still there right now. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, is, is this the kind of legitimacy that they're craving that they're getting here from this visit? Like we see the picture of, you know, Min Aung Lang shaking hands with the, with the special envoy. Is, yeah. You might understand better, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is a long history going well back to the 80s of UN envoys 
getting it wrong in Myanmar and very quickly discrediting themselves with both sides. And I won't name names going back to the 80s, but I do remember various Japanese envoys and various others going in there completely unbriefed, completely oblivious to the politics, the humanitarian situation, the human rights situation, the crisis in the lives of most people of Myanmar, because they see themselves as mediating between two sides, basically the army and the democratic opposition. They often bluster in and forget that in the middle ground between those two sides, there are 55 million people. And the tendency is to go in and to supplicate to the junta because they feel that the junta hold all the power. And it's only by an accommodation with the junta that they can get anything in terms of a political outcome of their visit. Now, there are several questions to be raised. Firstly, the issue of timing. Should Nolene Heizar have gone there at all? And if she's going to go there at all, should she allow her visit that level of visibility? Now, I would argue there are question marks about both those things. I think that far more preparation, far more spade work needs to be done before UN envoys march into Myanmar and start shaking the hand of Minong Lang. You may have seen the front page of the New Light of Myanmar, which is the military's parish magazine, propaganda arm of Nolin Hazar, you know, meeting Minong Lang in this kind of North Korean style palace room. And the optics are terrible. I mean, imagine if you are a villager under fire in Chin State or a Rohingya who's just, you know, trying to survive the appalling genocide, you know, five years on. And you see the UN, who you're hoping for humanitarian, political, diplomatic development support from, shaking the hands of the person who's effectively committed a genocide against you. It sends out all the wrong signals. So I'm frankly not surprised that her office has gone the way that it has. The previous envoy similarly discredited herself and effectively lost credibility with everyone, including, incidentally, the junta, which is one of the great ironies. So, yes, I do have views. I think that continued UN envoy missions are doomed to the sorts of failure that the poor people of Myanmar and others like myself have now become accustomed to, unless there is serious preparatory work, and that involves engaging quietly behind the scenes with all sides. And, you know, that clearly hasn't been done. The engagement with the NUG could have been something which was handled entirely differently. Of course, she's not going to be allowed to see Aung San Suu Kyi and other members of the democratic opposition that have been detained. But there are other members of the democratic opposition all around the world that she could have spoken to and taken advice from. There is a whole humanitarian agenda that needs to be addressed. There's a whole human rights agenda. There are all sorts of levers that could have been pulled, working much more widely with UN member states, working much more creatively with Tom Andrews and his office, working much more creatively with the human rights apparatus within the UN system, the Human Rights Council, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, OHCHR in Geneva. There's a whole range of preparatory work that could and should have been done before this trip happened, which 
who knows whether it happened or not, it would appear not. And then in terms of the actual visit, the optics and the visibility should have been really much better thought through. The idea that she walks straight into Myanmar, heads to Napidor, shakes hands have been online and is put on the front page of the New Light of Myanmar, that is clearly going to destroy a mission like this and to destroy her credibility in the eyes of pretty much everyone in Myanmar outside military circles. So yes, I do have views on those, broadly speaking, are my views. Yeah, I was curious because when I saw the handshake, I thought, oh, like, I mean, it takes a certain kind of person to shake a hand like that. And, and also at the back of like these these executions that have happened, oh. like, I mean, it's really you, like going in after that, it, it, to me, it signals, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a sign that they think things have gone too far. We need to go in and try to do something. But it just seems like really awful timing. I'm not saying don't go in. I'm saying go in intelligently. Go in on the basis of really good preparatory diplomatic work. Talk to all the concerned parties. Has she spoken to the Chinese? Has she been to Beijing? Has she tried to engage with those who have influence, like the Russians even, over Myanmar? Has she tried to engage with people in ASEAN? Has she tried to engage with the UN's human rights apparatus, with the development apparatus? with those working on COVID, where, you know, the generals clearly are trying to do something, if only to stop the Tatmadaw getting COVID and dying. You know, there are a whole load of levers which could be pulled in terms of preparatory work, not least engagement with the National Unity Government and getting their take on who she sees and how she works more creatively with the democratic opposition in the diaspora. So I'm not saying none of that work was done. All I'm saying is that if it was done, there are very few signs of it. And I think that, you know, that does need to be done. And as I say, she needs someone to give her good media advice because being pictured on the front page of the New Light of Myanmar on day one of a trip like that is going to kill it off. And I fear that, you know, that image alone has done much to destroy the credibility, not just of this visit, but of the office of the UN envoy. And like, I'm always quite critical of the UN and I, I can't help myself. Just in terms of Myanmar, it feels like they have continuously failed in every approach. But you know the inside workings of the UN. Is it an institution? Do you believe in it as an institution? You know, is it doing stuff? Am I just really biased on this? Um, no, you're, you're not biased at all. I think, you know, your your instincts and your judgment are right. But I would also say that if the UN didn't exist, something very, very much like it, very similar to it, would have to be invented. There has to be an organisation which governs relationships between states and which is a talking shop for states. And that's essentially what the UN is. As far as the UN country team is concerned, it has been a bit of an unmitigated disaster. And the UN protection cluster, which is run by UNHCR, um, has been an unmitigated disaster. I think things are getting a little bit better. But I mean, essentially, after the election in 2015, and when the world thought, ah, there's going to be democratic governance in Burma, we can get stuck in with long-term development work. The UN piled in with their development mandates and started doing long-term stuff that the UN does. However, when the coup happened, what was needed was short-term humanitarian work. So the mandate, the long-term mandate, under which the UN went in, these development, these agencies, was suddenly irrelevant. You know, there were people being shot to death in the streets. There were people being clubbed with rifles in hospitals. There were doctors being tortured. 
There was the need all around the country of psychosocial support. There was the need for human rights tracking of prison visits, of case work, who was being imprisoned and who were the, you know, groups that were working, civil society groups in Myanmar, because the people of Myanmar, you know, have longer experience in the international community of dealing with their own humanitarian issues. I mean, that goes without saying. And so the UN was quite arrogant, I think, in its approach to working with local groups, with CBO, citizens-based organizations, with civil society within Myanmar. But it was also wrong-footed because the basis on which it went in, the development mandates they had, was suddenly inappropriate on the 1st of February last year. And the UN simply didn't have the nimbleness to change its mandates and become relevant. So you had you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people being displaced. You had all these terrible shootings and injuries and all the psychosocial work, you know, terrible psychological damage. And the UN simply wasn't there. They couldn't be there because they didn't have a man. They didn't know how to do this. So they were caught. They were wrong footed very badly by the coup. And, you know, it's been catch up ever since. And sadly, the people of Myanmar are the ones who paid the price. You mentioned earlier, like a fundamental difference between now and, and 88 is the Generation Z and social media and, and how fast um, live images can be spread and things. I'm just wondering what you think the likelihood is of this kind of generation wise, the military children, basically, and their access to this information and the families that are seeing these images. Do you think there is a window of opportunity for perhaps there to be a change from within come next generation rather than it being a constant revolution struggle. Um, I, I do. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm old, but I really believe in the next generation and I salute their courage time and time again. I'm absolutely flabbergasted by how incredibly courageous these young kids are, you know, on the streets of Rangoon fighting for human rights and democracy in the face of merciless soldiers pointing guns at them. It's astonishing. And we saw that. We saw the umbrella protest, the 8888, with people holding up umbrellas of 8888 on bridges and things, and people sort of sending drones to take pictures. And I mean, it was astonishing. And, and the point you raise about the children of the military is also very interesting, Ruth, because although I do think that the military in Myanmar live in a bubble, I mean, they literally live in cantonments and different places. And, you know, we know very well that the children of Many of these very senior generals are in European capitals doing their shopping and having holidays. And there is that level of the military echelons who I think perhaps are so privileged that they are beyond the reach of human conscience. But I do think that further down the military command chain and at the level where at the township level, there's quite a vicious campaign of retaliation against both the military and the civilian administration even. And I think at that level, the children of those people are thinking, what do we do? Do we want a future being hated within our communities as being the children of people who have brutalized a country? And I think that plays into the army as well. I don't have the latest figures for defections, but it is very clear that there are more defections within the Myanmar military than ever before. I think that it's going to take a long time for that to have an effect. But I think ultimately, although there are no signs of it happening now, I think ultimately even the Tatmator might, and I say might, get to the tipping point 
We certainly are a very long way from it now. There are no signs of the Tatmadaw splitting, but there is no doubt in my mind that the genie is out of the bottle, and that genie is Generation Z and the power of digital technology to communicate individual tragedy, but also the tragedy of a nation. And that is something which will never be put back in the bottle. And the army don't have an answer to it apart from sheer violence and brutality. So although I think it's going to be a long struggle, and although I think a lot more life is going to be lost, I don't think we're going to be like we were in 1988, where following the massacres in the September of 1988, the opposition was so brutalized. They were literally being slaughtered in the streets and they were simply crushed. Um, they were being killed. They were being wounded. They, you know, Burma was put in the, in the deep freeze and it stayed in the deep freeze. There were the elections of 1990, which of course are fixed and nothing really happened until Cyclone Nargis in 2000, until we got basically the 2008 constitution where the military was basically, so after Cyclone Nargis, um, the international community said to the generals, well, if you want to rebuild your country, and the Irrawaddy Delta was completely smashed to pieces by this terrible natural disaster, the international community said to the generals, well, if you want us to come in and help you rebuild, you're going to have to loosen up politically. And then we saw the by-elections in 2012, in which the NLD won over 40 of them. And the NLD, as you know, boycotted the 2010 elections. And that led to some of the liberalizations. You saw the release of political prisoners. We saw a loosening up of freedom of speech. Journalists were allowed to start working properly. And then you had this sort of three-year amazing window where the oxygen of freedom of expression and there's greater political space that was created. And it was during that time that Generation Z really learnt about the full potential of digital technology of the internet. And I think the lessons of that window, that period of liberalization, the lessons have been learned. And as I say, the genie is out. You cannot, the army cannot turn the clock back. That is simply there. And so the connections are being made within Myanmar. So people all over the country now know what's going on, despite the, you know, the internet restrictions. People are finding a way around it, but also bridges being built outside the country. So politically, in terms of advocacy that's being done, you know, there are Facebook groups of students in Myanmar involving people in the US House of Representatives. You know, we in MAP have signal groups with kids all over the place in Myanmar, but also involving human rights workers in DC and politicians in Jakarta. You know, the opportunities for connections and for online public advocacy have never been so great. And they're proliferating by the hour. And that offers me great hope. I mean, I may be dead. I may not be alive to see the age of democracy dawn in Myanmar. But, you know, whatever else happens, we have crossed a Rubicon and there is no going back to the dark days of 1988. However bad things get in Myanmar, there will always be a torch being shone into what is going on there. And that is something which the, the generals moving forward will never again be able to avoid. What is your hope then, Chris? Like, I mean, with your organization, I mean, obviously you're taking all of these legal cases and you're hoping for, for outcomes, but what 
what are the kind of key things that need to happen for Myanmar to to restore its democracy and and to take these generals out of power? It's been a long time, like you know, we're now well into 2022. People have been they're losing everything. You know, people are yeah. starving in the country. There's no jobs. You know, people are people have given everything for this. Um, many have given their lives, and and we're still no further to a solution right now. So. What are those yeah. key things that you think maybe are needed to kind of push the movement over the line? So broadly speaking, there are two categories of things, as you put it, that need to happen, external things and internal things. On the external front, we need to draw up as many different battle lines against the junta such that we create as much pressure as possible on the junta for internal change and, if possible, a split within the army. So. These external battle lines are, for example, the arms embargo, which the General Assembly has imposed. Of course, it's not being implemented because Russia and China are major arms suppliers, particularly Russia, increasingly. But as well as an arms embargo, we need to cut off their financial supplies. So Singapore here is crucial. So much of the junta's illegal funding from oil and all sorts of other businesses, you know, the pipeline, the, the financial pipeline, to Singapore, but in other places, needs to be stopped immediately. So financial sanctions, military sanctions, obviously, but also diplomatic sanctions. So I don't think that there is a case for engaging this junta at all. I don't think the policy that many foreign governments are espousing of doing everything they can to keep their embassies in Yangon going, I don't see where that that policy is leading. They turn around and argue that they have all these amazing humanitarian operations on the ground. Well, there are plenty of local groups that can do that, and you don't need an embassy in Yangon. We know that to make that happen. There are plenty of groups, I can tell them all about, who are doing their work from outside the country. So diplomatic, military and financial um, sanctions, accountability, the kind of work that MAP very modestly and in a very small way is doing. Legal accountability, as far as I'm concerned, is the cutting edge of human rights work, that while amnesty and all these other groups do these, you know, impressive, huge reports. What do they do with them? You know, what happens to them? Um, who uses them? So we are using as much as we can the human rights reporting, which I've paid tribute before to Tom Andrews, but the kind of work that his, his amazing team are doing is very important because they're providing evidence that organizations like ours can use along with, let me be quick to say, the kind of evidence that Generation Z and other people within Myanmar are risking their lives to collect. And there are organizations which have worked with many groups inside Myanmar on storing, on analyzing, on categorizing much of this information that's coming out um, from mobile phones and, and other sorts of devices like that. So those, broadly speaking, and of course, you know, the, the, the human rights work that's being done generally by the international community, all of that, you know, forms many different battle lines, which we on the outside of the country need to do. And the work that people like Suzanne, you and Ruth are doing in simply getting information circulating and enabling groups like ours and enabling the people of Myanmar to tell their story, because it's only by this constant storytelling that there will be acknowledgement. So, you know, all of that work being done on the outside, I think, forms part of a, a landscape of public advocacy pressure that needs continually to be built on and to be activated and to be used against the junta. But, you know, that is only by way of empowering the second category of things I mentioned, which in a way is far more important. And that's the things happening inside Myanmar. And here, 
there are many different levels. At the very basic level, there's the health of individuals. There's the mental and physical health of individuals. That is being worked on, but that needs to be supported. And there are organizations, I shouldn't name them because I'll get them into trouble, who are doing amazing work inside Myanmar, psychosocial support, education, medical support for hospitals, all that work. But that needs to be supported and built up as much as possible. As I said earlier, there are 14 million people inside Myanmar in urgent need of humanitarian assistance. At the societal level, there is the whole question of governance. And here, the work of the National Unity Government is impressive in many ways. They've done a lot more than the NCBUG, as it was called in the, the exile government in the 90s. You now really do have a functioning government, I would say. I mean, it has problems given that it's in exile, its leaders have been imprisoned, its members are being killed and tortured, its supporters are being shot dead in the streets. I mean, this is not Switzerland. But nonetheless, what we have is a functioning government that is representing Myanmar on the world stage. It has ministries, it has a defense ministry, it has a home ministry, it has a foreign ministry, you know, and it's important that we recognize that, you know, in the face of appalling problems, the reality on the ground, the national government is functioning. But then you've got a whole lot of other levels, if you like, between the national unity government at the very top and ordinary people at the bottom. You've got various civil society groups that are supporting all of that work. You've got academic institutions, which you know somehow are managing to function. But the next generation in Myanmar is being lost because so many people, as happened in 1988, incidentally, simply gave up their academic careers and headed their way to the jungles and got training, got trained by the ethnic armed groups. So people who were, you know, third year engineering students who were destined for amazing careers to build their country quite literally were turned into young revolutionary students and their lives were ruined because of it, because that was a story in 1988. So yes, academic institutions need to be nurtured and need to be built up against all the odds. The medical infrastructure in Myanmar needs urgent assistance. Hospitals are being deeply politicized and turned into battlegrounds and they urgently need help. The legal system, it's very clear that, you know, one of the reasons why MAP is able to take cases to the International Criminal Court is that we are able to argue that there is no chance whatsoever of a fair trial within Myanmar. So, you know, the law courts and an independent judiciary, the training of judges and officials of the court, all that sort of work involving having an independent judiciary, that needs to be done. We need to continue to empower the groups which are doing human rights reporting, another level of civil society that needs to be nurtured. There's extraordinary work being done by some extraordinarily courageous people. That needs to be, I, mean, I could go on and on and on, but basically there is so much within Myanmar that needs to be built up and nurtured because not only are they part of the revolution today, in the sense of providing an anchor for people who need this support in spite of, you know, the, the terrible political situation around them. But we also need from the outside to be aware that we have a key role and that these groups inside Myanmar come first and they urgently need our support. Thank you for listening to Arnar Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at Arnar Podcast, spelled 
A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.